And I realized I could only be in one place at a time. And yet in the special forces battalions, we have 35 or 40 highly trained special forces medical sergeants. What I can do rather than me be trying to be in places is to enable them to do their job better. I can educate, I can train them, I can provide them with guidance, hopefully some mentorship. I can send them the supplies that they need and I can trust them. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Sean Keenan to WarDocs. Dr. Keenan is a board-certified and fellowship-trained emergency medicine physician. He currently is on staff at Evans Army Hospital at Fort Carson, Colorado, and is a consultant for the Joint Trauma System. He also is Assistant Director of Pre-Hospital Trauma and Operational Strategy at the University of Colorado Medical Campus in Aurora. He spent a large portion of his career serving in various roles in Special Forces groups. He also was the Command Surgeon for the Special Operations Command Europe. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Keenan's vast experience in operational medicine, taking on the challenges of providing care in austere locations and training personnel to be prepared for prolonged field care scenarios. He describes the important role played by the Special Operations Medical Association and how teleconsultation can be a force multiplier for medics at the tip of the spear. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Sean Keenan to WarDocs. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real privilege to be here. Dr. Keenan, what sparked your interest in attending West Point and what led you to then go to the Uniformed Services University? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Growing up, I grew up in Rhode Island. Didn't really know anybody that was in the military. Didn't have much of a family history of any of that. And I checked out the school. I had traveled in high school out to Colorado, actually, and seen the Air Force Academy. And, I, you know, it seemed like a pretty cool place. Didn't really know much about it. And my dad was a high school teacher. And he said, hey, there's these summer camp programs where you can go. I did pretty well in school. And so they have these academic summer camps. And I actually applied to the Air Force Academy one, didn't get in. But my dad said, hey, one of the counselors also was a representative for West Point, the Army. And so I put an application for that program, too, and got accepted. Really didn't know anything about it. And then I went there and spent a week at a summer camp. Then I went around and looked at some other colleges. And when I stopped and kind of considered them, I said, I, th I think the academy really offers a whole lot, a lot of challenges, not only academic, but physical and leadership. And I decided to go there without really knowing or thinking too much about a career in the military. I chose a school and when that set me on a path that's kind of unfolded from there. When I was considering colleges, I didn't really have a profession in mind, but I thought that medicine interests me, but I didn't know any physicians. And so I thought when I went to the academy that I would probably go the typical route, become an engineer or something like that. But then I found out during my second year that there was a, an equivalent of a pre-medicine track and not really having anything else that I had my heart set on. I said, well, let me go ahead and pursue this and keep that avenue open. And then as I progressed through the academy, I, I realized that some people were allowed to go to medical school and decided to take the MCAT and apply and I got in. But really just as one thing led to another, realized that I really did want to study medicine. And then USUS, I wasn't thinking that I wanted to go to another military school. I'd had enough military in my undergrad, but 
when I went down there and interviewed, the student body was very supportive, very happy. They said it was an awesome learning environment. And really, it was that face-to-face interview that made me choose to go to, to UCs. And in the process, I signed up for the largest commitment I think you can get in the military, which kind of <laughs> set me on a track to stay in the military for what turned out to be a career. So how many years does that turn into? 27 plus. So I retired on September 30th, 2018. So graduated from West Point in 91, UCIS 95, and then 27 plus years in the Army. So following medical school graduation, you... You spent some time at Tripler as a transitional intern and then became a battalion medical officer for the 1st Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group in Okinawa, Japan. Now, having only one year of post-medical school training, did you feel prepared in this position? And what were you thinking in preparing to go to do what you were going to do? So having gone to school at, at USUS, the, we went and we rotated at Walter Reed. And before the days of electronic medical records and electronic radiology. Uh, it was a student's job to to basically run around the hospital and be the scut monkey and really get abused by uh, all the support staff at Walter Reed. And so when I graduated from Eustis, I vowed to get as far away from Washington, D.C. as possible. And Tripler seemed like a really cool place to go. So me and a couple of my buddies said, we're going to go to Tripler. But really, when I had gone through West Point, you learn to be an officer and you learn to want to do Army stuff. And so when I got to medical school, I said, yes, I want to learn medicine, but I want to be an operational guy. I want to get out and cut my teeth as soon as possible. And so my intent was to complete internship and try to get out in the operational unit. And at the time, I was relatively young, motivated, and wanted to do operational medicine. And I had gone to airborne school as soon as I could, gone to the flight surgery course as soon as I could to try to tee myself up specifically to go special operations. And from my second year of summer camp for West Point, me and a couple of my buddies said, I really like this special operations stuff. Let me go check that out. And even though I knew I was going to be a support guy at a position, I kind of pursued that actively and was lucky enough. And, and I say lucky because there were tons of qualified applicants, both my classmates, other people with more prior service than me that were considered for that position. So extraordinarily lucky to go to 1st Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group in Okinawa, Japan in the late 90s, which was an incredible opportunity, but very intimidating. So to get to your question... I showed up there as one of the most junior people. And I was kind of, when you look at the Dunning-Kruger curve, I was kind of up at the peak of Mount Stupid. Like I had a lot of motivation and everything, but I really didn't have a lot of insight as to how unprepared I actually was. And I show up there in my NCOIC, Chris, just a phenomenal mentor. He's kind of kicked back and he has the ICU book open, but a page 300 and something. And I like walk in the medical office on day one, he start, you know, pimping me out on ICU questions. And at the time I thought it was somewhat coincidental, but I'm sure it was a complete setup because he was going to say, let me, let me mess with the new doc a little bit. And then he said, Hey, tomorrow morning, we're going to go do a little PT. And he set up his, his favorite 10 mile running course just to see if he could run me into the ground. But I was able to hang with that and I was able to hang and, and have enough humility to ask a lot of questions. And so it was a tremendous period of growth, but only later did I understand just how unprepared I would have been. Luckily, it was the late 90s. We weren't taking a bunch of casualties and I learned a lot. And it wasn't necessarily in my position, but I had the unique position of being an operational doc and the only doc. And so I was getting questions about preventive medicine. I had no idea about that. I was getting questions about vaccine side effects and didn't even realize that was something I need to know about. I was getting questions about how to obtain veterinary vaccines while I was TDY in Hawaii. And when my, my initial response was, I'm not a veterinarian. I have no business answering these questions. But what I realized is a staff officer supporting these guys 
I may not be fully qualified, but I was probably the best thing that they had. And, and the other thing I learned, which was, was interesting, was I was in some staff meetings and I was extraordinarily lucky. My commanders through special operations, all of my commanders went on to make general officer rank. And the, though they were vastly different styles and vastly different leaders, I had some tremendous leadership. And I didn't realize it at the time, but some informal mentoring. But I was in a staff meeting and I answered the question like I would have as a graduated intern. And my commander pulled me aside and he said, okay, doc, look, I know you just came out of the hospital a while ago. He goes, but you're not just an intern. You're our doc. You're my doc. You're, you're representing us all things about doc. So what you need to do basically is say, hey, how is it that I can support the guys and, and really represent us. And that was a little bit easier being in Okinawa because there was a Navy hospital. I was the only army doctor there, but whenever I picked up the phone, it was kind of fun just to say, Hey, this is Captain Keenan because it all jumped to attention. I could tell them the other day. And then I would say army type and they're like, Oh, okay. Got it. And then of course then they go back to that. But I was top cover for my guys to go out and practice medicine. And I learned after the fact that what I was doing was I was actually functioning as a medical director. And so as I went through my career and became more experienced and whatnot, I realized that being a medical director was really the role of the battalion doc. And, and that became more and more pertinent as we got into wartime and, and that type of thing. Did you have any memorable clinical cases during that post-internship years? We did a contingency operation. So one of our companies at the battalion was a crisis reaction force. And we actually went on a deployment this is in the late 90s, but we thought we had to do a non-combatant evacuation operation. And so we went down, set up in Thailand. We were going to go to a neighboring country. And, and what we had to do, one of our jobs was to medically process some of the evacuees, which were basically family members, embassy people. And so we actually stood up kind of a, a triage area. And then a couple of my medics decided to come up with some notional cases. And, and at that point, I realized just how unprepared a battalion aid station is to take care of and and confront those those folks and so that really uncovered some of the medical side with pediatrics neurological emergencies geriatric cases there was also a time when we had a major parachute accident where we had one of our sergeant majors run into one of our special forces captains uh, two major traumas unfortunately one guy had a bad head injury to pelvic fracture another guy had a spinal fracture and they had to be brought into the emergency department. I was not on the scene when they crashed, but I met them at the emergency department. But then they had to evacuate them on Thanksgiving weekend back to Tripler from Okinawa, which is about an eight-hour flight. And uh, I went as the medical attendant, and I just remember them. Neither was intubated, I don't think, at the time, but I was basically sitting there and pushing IV opioids while the family members are sitting in the seats watching everything I'm doing during this eight-hour flight. As I'm sitting there and pushing opioids to keep them as comfortable as possible as we were flying overnight back to Tripler and then delivering these guys to the ER back there. And at that point, I just thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm just glad that these guys are stable. But I remember taking care of these people, but more importantly, I'll say putting on a good face and, and trying to reassure the family members as their loved family members are basically unconscious and sedated. And I'm the only medical attendant on this slick, you know, 141 flying over there. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm actually not only their doc, but I am the family's doc. And, and I'm kind of alone and unafraid out here, but they were looking to me to provide comfort and care for their family members. And so that was one of those times where it really hit home that, yeah, I, I was in fact their doc. And 
although I didn't always feel like I measured up, that this is sometimes the best that we are able to do for our people. So you spent four years in clinical practices, first as this battalion medical officer with the first special forces group, and then you went to the flight surgeon course. What ultimately made you decide that you wanted to pursue extra training in emergency medicine at your residency? Yeah. So, well, I went to the flight surgeon course as a medical student because that was a prerequisite for, uh, for special forces because we have halo operations. And I actually went, I trained as a dive medical officer as well, but I had applied to surgery, surgical subspecialties, being out in Okinawa. I realized at that point, I probably need to come back CONUS. And so I actually got assigned as a flight surgeon at Fort Sam Houston for a year because I realized there were some programs at Brook Art Medical Center I wanted to check out. They didn't know me from anybody because I'd never been there before. So I got there in what I called purgatory because I was doing a sick call basically for AIT students and a lot of sniffles, a lot of URIs. But seeing this constant sick call crowd and actually practicing medicine, I kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing basic medicine and in some cases taking care of some pretty sick people. And so some of my friends were rotating. So back in those days, most people that were going for competitive residencies had to do GMO tours. It's not that way now, but some of my com companions are in surgical subspecialties or classmates were in surgical subspecialties and quite a few were in the emergency medicine program. And there were six of my classmates from USUS that were in emergency medicine, but five of them during medical school had never declared emergency medicine specialty. And so I went over and I was talking to a bunch of my classmates, and they were usually a year or two ahead of me because I spent some time out as a GMO. And it seemed like uniformly the folks in emergency medicine were very satisfied and very happy. And some of my other classmates were not as happy or satisfied. And so I took a week to go rotate through emergency medicine and found that I really enjoyed it. And more importantly, I think it, it gave me a certain sense of managing all commerce. There's obviously a certain amount of adrenaline involved with it. And it allowed me to continue to think I could serve in operational medicine billets, as well as be hospital-based. And so it gave me some options. And, and ultimately from talking to my, my classmates, and I was a little older, I was married, I had a young son at the time. I realized this, this is a great balance of practicing medicine, potential for operational medicine, some lifestyle considerations. And so I, so I went into it and, and very, very happy with the choice and, and really enjoyed it. So following your residency in, in 2005, you served as the battalion medical officer for the 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group this time in North Carolina. How is that different now that you're a residency trained emergency physician versus a general medical officer, a GMO, like you had been in the previous assignment in Okinawa? So when the Twin Towers um, attack happened, I was on a rotation there at Brooklyn Medical Center. And I knew when that happened, when I was getting out, I was, I was, I was going back operational. Like you weren't going to stop me. And, and I actually spent two years on, uh, on special operations surgical teams. And so I went out and I, and I basically served in an emergency medicine role. And I realized that that supporting role was fantastic with some fantastic teammates. And, but I missed the special forces battalion surgeon where I was doing the medical operations. I was doing the preventive medicine. I was training my guys, and most importantly, I was being a medical director, some of the most highly trained medical folks. And so towards the end of my tour in Okinawa, one of the, at a hail and farewell, one of the sergeant majors, he said, oh, I love you guys. I love the mission. And my only regret about leaving right now is that we never got to go to war with you bastards. And it was kind of like, you know, Ugh. and we realized, yeah, you're right. We trained, we trained, we trained, but we never got to go to the big show. We never actually got to 
practice as like we were trained. And so after a couple of deployments with the special operations surgical teams, the opportunity came up and I was actually deployed in Iraq and I had applied back to USASOC, the USASOC surgeon, Rocky Farr, who many people know. I applied and he said, I don't know, there's a lot of people stay in these positions. But then uh, Jim Zarnick calls me up. So Jim Zarnick was third group surgeon at the time. He goes, hey, Sean, good news and bad news. Good news, there's one battalion coming open this year and we want to offer it to you. Bad news is, I know you're sitting in Iraq right now and it's March, but in June, you're going to have to go to Afghanistan. And I'm like, okay, let me talk to my wife. And I called them back a day or two later. I said, I'll take it. And so, and the intent was now that I was residency trained, senior 04, had a fair amount of time. I like now I finally kind of knew what the job was all about. And more importantly, as somebody described it, you get to join the NFL team that's going to the finals and you're playing a high school team. You get to go with the most highly trained people and actually professionally do the job that you trained for. And by then it had been about 13 years since I had joined the military. And so it was a tremendous experience, but I felt like the learning curve I had gone through in my, my first time as a junior captain. And so I could really and truly hit the ground running. So I signed into the battalion and three weeks later, I'm in an aircraft heading for Southern Afghanistan. And at that time in 05 and 06, and then I did another rotation right after that 06 into 07, we were the only game in town in Southern Afghanistan. We were the only American troops. We had special forces teams on 13 fire bases the first time and then 17 fire bases. And our guys were, as we say, kind of alone and unafraid. And we had a battalion commander who had been over there multiple times and really understood the problem set. And so I was incredibly fortunate to work with professionals and I felt as though I could actually contribute from day one when I got into there. So you mentioned earlier in the interview that you seem like you're more of a medical director in these positions as the battalion medical officer with the special forces group. But then you went on to become the emergency medical system director at Evans Army Hospital and you did that job for five years. Describe to us the difference between being the medical director in a unit that is serving a combat mission versus that unit that we might see stateside. They say the fate of the wounded lies in the person who applies the first bandage. You know, as an emergency physician, a lot of times when I speak with medics or I speak with even some of my colleagues, I can probably count on two hands the people that I'd actually saved their lives, right? The people who are actually doing the hard jobs. The ones that are truly applying the tourniquets and the bandages and, and saving the lives are the medics on the front line. And they do it with very little sometimes training or experience or support compared to hospital providers. But they're really the ones who, if they are not trained well or their colleagues are not trained well, then, then, then the fate of that person often hinges on that. And I realized I could only be in one place at a time. And yet in the special forces battalions, we have 35 or 40 highly trained special forces medical sergeants. What I can do rather than me be trying to be in places is to enable them to do their job better. I can educate, I can train them, I can provide them with guidance, hopefully some mentorship. I can send them the supplies that they need and I can trust them if I know them. I know their personalities, I know their strengths and their weaknesses, and they can trust me to have their back. Now I have a whole cadre of folks that I can provide support for, and they can go out and provide awesome medicine. 
And I realized that early on, I checked my ego and I said, my job is to support these guys in whatever way they need it. If they need me to spend them two more bags of fluid, if they need me to call up the hospital and get support, or they need me to jump on a medevac aircraft and go pick up their guys, I need to be there so that they can continue to do their job. And I think our operational commanders absolutely want to know that even if the medics don't have to do their job, that they are highly trained and there's a system behind them to support them that absolutely enables missions. And so if you're guys and your place is a medical director, you can actually enable your folks to do that job. So whether that's special operations medics in combat or whether those are civilian paramedics and EMS personnel, if you understand them, if you can allow them to practice safely at the limits of their skills and you will back them up, especially if they have a bad experience, perhaps at a receiving hospital or somebody that's doubting them. But if they know that you're going to go to bat for them, these people will provide phenomenal service to the community. And so when I had the opportunity to do this on the civilian side, and we had civilian contracted GS employees, I got to know them. And, and more importantly, I got to, to get in a bit on their business and provide that top cover so they could go and do their job. And I think I really didn't see them as being completely different than the folks that I work with downrange combat. These are folks that I was there to support and to provide top cover for and get out of their way when they were doing good work. And uh, at that point, I realized, wow, I've been an EMS medical director. I've been somebody that's supported guys ever since I started doing operational medicine. And if I could you know, point that out to a, a lot of young docs out there, one of their main jobs is not necessarily to do doctor stuff one-on-one, but it's absolutely to get to know, train, and take responsibility for the jobs that their medics are doing, and then just provide that top cover be that medical officer who go out and, and advocate for them. And once they know that you've got their back and that they can go out and practice to limits of their experience, I think you'll find that the outcomes for the unit as a whole are, are going to be exponentially better. So you continued in the special forces world and were the group medical officer for the 10th special forces group. And by this time you have had a lot of experience, both at the battalion levels in CONUS in a, in a hospital and really all over the world, what would you say in those experiences was one of the most important lessons that you learned that you'd want to pass on to people who are coming behind you? From a fundamental aspect, when people say, I, if I'm talking to a medical, say, or a paramedic or whoever, and they say, I want to study medicine, what should I do? And I say, well, choose something that you're truly interested in. Find something that will allow you to persevere when it's two in the morning during your training and you really don't like doing something. Find something that you derive energy from, that you derive personal satisfaction, that you derive joy from and, and pursue that. Because I think if you're truly happy and satisfied both professionally and, and emotionally in what you're doing, then you're going to put that much more into it. The other thing I think is that early on, we always look to textbooks and we look to senior people to provide guidance and mentorship as to what we need to do. And then at some point you realize you are them. You are the they. You are the people that are there to solve those problems. And so between my battalion time at 3rd Special Forces Group, I moved to Fort Carson and I was in the hospital for five years and I worked the emergency department. I was the chief of the emergency department. I did my hospital time and I got to a point where I realized, okay, that, that was great. But my passion truly lies in 
special operations medicine and what we consider being a, a senior medical director operationally. And so I was fortunate enough to be offered to go back to the 10th Special Forces Group. Ironically, because I was an 05 promotable. Because I say that ironically, because the reason I left the battalion job was that the guys at the U.S. Army Special Operations Command said, hey, you're an 04 promotable and we can't have you be the same rank as your commander. So you're going to have to PCS. And that's how I moved and ended up at Fort Carson, which turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. But I was a little bitter at the time. And so then it came time when the 10 Special Forces group surgeon was rotating out and they're like, hey, you want to go be a group surgeon? I said, yeah, but I'm an 05 promotable. I can't. And they're like, ah, don't worry about it. You're the most qualified guy. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, okay, great. So it is luck and timing, right? But it's, it's, it's kind of funny how, how people can, uh, can spin the regs on you, right? And then actually I sat on the outgoing interview with the hospital commander. He goes, why are you going to go? Why are you going to go do that job? There's a lot that you could be doing in the hospital. There's a lot you could be doing. You know, if you look in the career progression of a AMED officer, you're supposed to go to the war college. You're supposed to do this. And I said, I'm going there because I'm passionate about it. And I think that's the best place that I could contribute. And so I went over to 10 Special Forces Group, which was fantastic. Tremendous group of guys. And at that time, the 10 Special Forces Group, which is just, so Special Forces Groups are graphically assigned. So the 10 Special Forces Group was historically always aligned with Europe. But because of the operations tempo in the 3rd Special Forces Group, which I had been in, which we had gone to Afghanistan a lot, they were really being pulled into Afghanistan a lot to the point where they realigned 10 Special Forces Group to Africa, someplace that we'd be lucky to find it on a map. I say that somewhat facetiously, but we didn't appreciate the distance and, and what actually was in Africa. And so our guys started going there and then they came back and they started to describe the problem set. And I know other people have described it, but it, it was kind of this intersection of operational need and the experience that I have and the tremendously liberating feeling which we all get when we reach terminal rank to say, you know what, screw this. I'm going to use my terminal rank and I'm just going to do what I think is right. And so as we looked at the problem set, which became prolonged field care, we decided that we had a big problem that we needed to try to fix. And so me, a few of my medics, a couple of my docs, and then a whole community that we got together based on the Special Operations Medical Association. We started what became the Prolonged Field Care Working Group back in late 2013, based on our priorities and operational need that we needed for the 10 Special Forces Group. So in 2015, you then became the Command Surgeon for Special Operations Command Europe. Tell us about that position and the memorable experiences you have in that role. I had worked very closely with Special Operations Command Africa, actually, because we were supplying most of the teams and the medics, and we were training the, the medics in particular to go and deploy over there. And so I had the opportunity to talk quite a bit to the folks in Stuttgart, Germany. And so Stuttgart, Germany as a city is the only place where there's two major combat commands and the theater special operations command are both located in Stuttgart. And I was looking at special operations command Africa, but also special operations command Europe. And that was kind of the higher headquarters. And then right towards the end of my time, 10 Special Forces Group was getting back, aligning with Europe. And that just happened to be the, the job that was open. And having lived as a junior captain overseas, me and my wife at the time really were looking forward to living overseas. I have three boys and my children were in grade school, junior high school. And, and the opportunity to live overseas and continue to serve with SOC Europe was an opportunity we couldn't pass up. And so as a terminal assignment, we went over to Stuttgart and worked with SOC Europe. And that was 
very professionally satisfying because as a senior special operations doc, we got to work with a lot of super individuals from, from NATO and NATO special operations. And we were able to kind of look at problems at a higher level. We were considering mature adversaries. We were dealing with standardizing not only tactical combat casualty care, but special operations surgical team training and prolonged field care training. And got with some colleagues that were standing up the NATO special operations combat medic course. And so we got to do a lot of really cool advanced initiatives and, and hopefully set for some conditions of success based on conflicts that are going on today, right? And at Sakir, a lot of the 10th group guys are actually going over and training Ukrainian special operations and setting up their special forces school. Although they weren't really doing too much on the medical side, peripherally, we were engaged with setting conditions for success over there as well. So pretty relevant stuff. So I think a lot of people recognize that the special operations community is really tasked with going to some very difficult places and providing medical support for the units that go to these places where it's often austere. I'm sure that you have some clinical cases that are memorable or things that just kind of were unbelievable that you really couldn't imagine. Anything come to mind in your history with special operations? Yeah. The rest of the military kind of takes for granted is that these guys are really highly trained and we've got most medical cases covered. And the good thing about Iraq and Afghanistan was that we really perfected our medical system and we did a fantastic job. And the highest survivability rates, tremendous support system, trauma systems going all the way from point of injury back through the roll fours back in CONUS. And the story that wasn't told too much is all the guys that were going out there kind of alone and unafraid. And really that kind of was pushed aside because of the, the immediate problems of direct combat actions that we were seeing. And so we have quite a few guys that were out there. And uh, I think getting an appreciation for some of those problems in austere medicine and the challenges that they have to face when they go out as the only practitioner, whether it be in Southeast Asia, whether it be in Africa or some of these other places, that there's the systems don't always support what's going on there. I remember back in Okinawa, there was a guy who was supporting the uh, GTF full accounting where they were looking for the POW MIAs and he was driving around with a Vietnamese guy and he was taking a nap in the back of, of this guy's car, didn't have a seatbelt on. And then the guy like drove off the side of the embankment, flipped the car a bunch of times. And this guy had a pretty significant closed head injury, had some cracked ribs and went into a, a Vietnamese system. And, and we, we actually had to work to personally move him to, to Thailand and then back to Okinawa. And just kind of the way that evacuation was cobbled together through Department of State, the embassy and some other stuff. It, it's amazing that he did as well as he did. But the fact that it happened to be somewhere and I had to go meet him in Thailand, and then we had to work our way back through civilian plane tickets, working him back through as I'm carrying IV drugs, that was interesting, leaving Thailand. We got some extra scrutiny from their uh, security agents. I got, I've got this guy that I'm giving Rosafin to every six hours IV because he has an indwelling IV. So I'm carrying around syringes and catheters as we're moving through the civilian airport and then saying, no, really, I am a doctor and I know I'm leaving the heroin capital of the world, but really I'm taking care of this guy. And he's kind of out of it because he has a closed head injury. That was looking back on it kind of funny, but I didn't, wasn't sure if we were going to be detained too much, but, uh, you know, that was, that, that was kind of anecdotal and funny. But then when we got to the point of looking at these problems in Africa and prolonged field care, we actually took it to the point where we would academically with our staffs. And it was SOC Africa staff. We'd actually try to do case reports 
and tease out all the lessons learned so that we could really look at not only in the individual care of these patients, but where we can make the systems better. And I think that's where a lot of the prolonged field care efforts were giving this operational problem set a name and then actually getting some academic interest to support it. And then me realizing as a medical director that I owed it to my guys to actually study each and every case and see what we can learn and see what we can pass on to other people and lessons learned, and then hopefully identify gaps that we could push up. And I tell you, the folks at the Joint Trauma System, Stacey Shackford, Jen Gertie, the whole staff there, they really got behind our need and helped us quite a bit with the gap analysis. And then a few years later, then the research folks came on board and, and it went from being a small problem to now a named thing with the uh, publication of Plum Casualty Care Guidelines here recently. So you're the senior author on a paper published in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine in 2017 entitled Teleconsultation in Prolonged Field Care Physician Paper. Tell us about teleconsultation in prolonged field care and how is it utilized and what are the challenges and limitations? The idea behind prolonged field care, and to set the record straight, this isn't something super sexy and unattainable that only special operations guys do. What this was, was an attempt to characterize and break down essential capabilities that would be needed to take care of serious and critical casualties if you could not evacuate them. And the idea basically being was to try to characterize those things that actually make a difference, that somebody with far forward without support, what is it that they could do that could potentially make a difference in a casualties outcome? We know full well that people are going to self-triage. A lot of people are going to die despite your best efforts. And as I say, a lot of people are going to live despite their best efforts. But there's some folks in there that it really makes a difference. And the idea was what capabilities could we safely bring forward to the patient if we can't bring the patient out? And one of those things that was huge was teleconsultation. And I was an observer of telemedicine for many years and decades and was chagrined to see that it was technology looking for an application. If you talked about telemedicine, it was always, let me show you the, the live stream synchronous EKG with the old, with the ultrasound images and being able to transport that. And I said that that's, that's not what we need. That's not what our medics need. That's not what I was doing as a battalion surgeon. What I was doing was what I did every day in the emergency department, which is when I had a question, I'd pick up the phone, I would present a case and I would get a consultation. And so one of the things that me and a couple of people, we started calling it teleconsultation to try to distinguish it from the technology of telemedicine. But one thing that we said is if I cannot bring a sick patient back to a surgeon or a critical care doctor or an emergency physician? What if I could invite that specialist forward to virtually be by my side to help with my decision-making, to give me a consultation on a patient? And so what we decided to do is we decided to write a position paper specifically to say, it's not about technology. It's not about bandwidth necessarily. It's about the ability to organize your thoughts, your ability to create problem lists, your ability to produce a quality presentation to somebody, and I'm not going to say smarter than you, but has more experience in the area that you want so that you're able to invite that specialist that you need to help your patient to the bedside. And I think that this concept of teleconsultation is absolutely, as I call, a force multiplier in austere environments. And so if you don't have, and by austere, it means you don't have supplies, 
you don't have experience, you don't have specialization. Teleconsultation is one of those things that can absolutely help the provider in a, in a bad situation on their worst day. And the other thing that we had to overcome with this is that whenever we trained medical personnel, and, and a lot of times it's medics, it's, it's somewhat recall and somewhat punitive, meaning that they need to perform as an individual. They are not allowed to ask questions. They're not allowed to say that they don't know. And that's reinforced when they get to a high-performing team of professionals, and they're the expert on medicine. And the idea is you've got all the training you need and you're the expert. So you need to go ahead and do that. And we had a whole paradigm, a whole culture shift that we had to overcome on the special operations side to say, it's okay to call. It's okay to say you don't know it. And in fact, if I do it three to five times in an eight to 10 hour shift as an emergency position, I pick up the phone and say, I need your help. Radiologist, cardiologist, general surgeon, whoever. And I may know exactly exactly what's going on with the patient, or I may have no idea why the little old lady in bed number five has altered mental status. But I do it every single day. I pick up the phone and I invite people to the care of my patients. Why shouldn't I replicate that best practice for those people that we're sending out in the middle of nowhere with no support? And so our idea behind that position paper was to say, it's not about the technology. It's about the ability to bring that capability to the litter side or the bedside or the tent side when I can't bring that person out. And you could say the same thing about resuscitation of blood. You could say the same thing about some surgical interventions, but telemedicine or teleconsultation is such a powerful thing that I think that we were able to do. And one of the cool things that the whole prolonged field care effort by describing the problem, we were able to approach the experts. And I give tremendous credit to Jeremy Pamplin and his crew who took this up and designed what was eventually the advisor system which we use worldwide right now, and it's staffed by DOD experts. So you talked a little bit before with the Special Operations Medical Association and their involvement with looking at problems and coming up with solutions. And we know that they're really looking into how can we improve our capabilities with prolonged field care because we may find that being more of a necessity in future battles. What are the questions they're trying to answer right now about what we need to have on the battlefield of the future? So tactical combat casualty care basically came out of SOMA, or state resuscitated surgical team policy came out of work group that started at SOMA. Prolonged field care came out of SOMA. SOMA is not only, as we say, the most interesting medical society in the world, it's an incubator for those people to get together and look at problems. And you get a tremendous amount of experience, but also creative thinkers and doers together at the same place. And so I, I'm a little bit biased. I'm the military vice president of SOMA right now. I've been on the board for going on seven years because it was the one forum where I, I think that set me on the path of where I was. That's where I got the most mentorship. I went as a medical student to SOMA way back when. I continued to attend whenever I could, but I saw it as an association that was focused the efforts on the medics and more importantly, bringing those experts together to be an incubator for research and development and policies and a lot of those things that are adopted by the big military. Unfortunately, we had a lot of experience with trauma care and medical challenges and, and we had super experienced trauma capability at the height of the wars. That has gone away. We talk about the Walker dip and we talk about this. I, I work part-time as a consultant for the Joint Trauma System right now. 
And we talk about trying to prevent the Walker dip because there are people who are not uh, military officers, NCOs, medics, physicians, surgeons, nurses, all of our specialists who are just not seeing the patient load, the trauma load that we experienced. And because commanders are not taking casualties and because there's just not this urgency that we need, simple things like tactical combat casualty care and the emergency war surgery course and all of those enabling training that we know is important is probably not getting the emphasis that it needs to. And we're very concerned about the next conflict and what we need to do to get ready for that. Somewhat coincidentally, the problem of prolonged field care, basically taking care of patients in initially, which was going to be uh, long distances without a lot of support, is some, a lot of the principles are analogous to what we think the next conflict might look like. Large-scale combat operations where we just don't have freedom of movement, we don't have freedom of movement of patients, and a lot of facilities may find themselves cut off and having to manage patients for doctrine and longer than what they need to do. And so I think a lot of the concepts that we put in the incubator have now been adopted wholesale. And as I alluded to, the prolonged casualty care guidelines, which were published in December of 21, came out. And a lot of that was based on a lot of the ideas of the working group and whatnot there. And, and we continue to keep prolonged field care kind of as a special operations thing so we can continue to be agile and we can continue to, to innovate and hopefully identify gaps that we can then pass on back best practices to. And one of the things that we're tremendously proud of from those efforts, the SOMA Prolonged Field Care Working Group, was the website prolongedfieldcare.org or pfcare.org and the Prolonged Field Care Podcast. And so the challenges, I think, to start your question with prolonged field care, experience, education, and training. I'm involved in a few different things, but in my heart of hearts, I think that education and training will continue to be our biggest gap, and we will have to continue to advocate for that into the future. And if we don't invest in education and training, then we're going to feel it. We're going to feel it on the first wounded casualties in the next conflict, and it's going to take a little, little bit of effort to get back up to that level that we enjoyed, unfortunately, because we were seeing so much trauma volume 10 years ago during the conflicts. You now serve as the Chief Medical Officer of Ragged Edge Solutions. Tell us about that organization and describe the Mountain Path and Darkwood medical exercises. I got together with a couple of my colleagues. And so one of my colleagues, so I mentioned Doug Paul, he's a battalion surgeon and his main training NCO, Roger Dale, were looking at prolonged field care and their third special force group was going to Africa quite a bit. And they stood up an exercise that while they were in active duty called Mountain Path, which was replicating a prolonged field care special operations scenario. And just tremendous insight and tremendous amount of effort went into that. And then as a few of us were transitioning out of the military, Roger and my colleagues, Bill Vashus and my buddy Rich, we said, we love training. We know that we need training and education, but we never had time to be dedicated towards education and training while we're on active duty because we're doing staff work and all the other stuff. And through a lot of personal effort, particularly on Roger and Rich's part, Bill, they really transitioned that to what we call the Dark Woods exercise. So that's a special operations prolonged field care training course based out of Eastern North Carolina, where we are able to take advantage of some tremendous facilities, but we also enjoy being able to work directly with special operations, both medics and non-medics and the professional satisfaction of training guys who are still doing the hard jobs every single day is, is tremendous. And I know a lot of people, when they leave the military, 
they really miss the camaraderie and they miss making a difference and doing things that have joy and meaning. This is one of those things that truly we are absolutely passionate about. And, and it's something, as I just observed, that education training is absolutely a risk. And what we try to do is we try to provide a solution to those folks for what we think is, is, should be the model of prolonged field care training. And, and it's, it's an absolute privilege for me to be able to still in this capacity, go back and teach guys who I know in a month or two are going to go out the door. And, and one of the most professionally satisfying things, all the time as a medical director, I was at JTS conference last year and they look at performance improvement and they said, Hey, there haven't been too many active resuscitations out in the field, but you know, there was this, there's this one case where there's a couple of wounded guys and, and these guys managed them and they did every single step of damage control resuscitation, stabilized the patient, got them out. And I'm, I'm kind of listening and they're like, yeah, it was we think it was a Navy special warfare unit that was over in Eastern Africa. And then I kind of peeled it back and I'm like, wait a minute, I, I was teaching those guys like eight months ago. I was like, those are the guys who went to our course. And, and to see it come out in the metrics on the other end, to see them follow the CPG and actually get that kind of feedback back. And that was one of the most tremendous, professionally satisfying things going back, knowing that those guys had gone out and sustained casualties, unfortunately. But the fact that they were able to manage them to standard was tremendously professionally rewarding. You also started a nonprofit organization, which is Specialized Medical Standards. What does that organization do? What we, what we saw was there's a gap with education and training. We think that over the last almost four years now, we've come up with a, a pretty good curriculum. Um, but what we said was no, no one's going to listen to just a couple of guys hanging out in Eastern North Carolina and the associates, obviously. I live in Colorado. And we said, what I, I think that we owe it to the community to try to get out some of our curriculum and share it with the wider community with a big C. And so what we decided to do was to, to spin off a nonprofit organization. And the reason why it was nonprofit is because much like the Prong Field Care Working Group, we wanted to invite such a bad experts to come in and contribute and contribute freely in such a way that we were doing good for the community. And so we put together an, what we call the International Committee for Worcester Emergency Care. We're developing now a curriculum and what we hope to do is, is get some of the best practices through a, a verified curriculum out that could be an option for people who need to train. And I'm talking about those people. We went out and did pilot courses with rural and frontier EMS here in Colorado, validated the concepts, got some rave reviews from people, again, that are out there alone and unafraid doing the job every day. And we hope that we can share some of the military best practices and actually have some of those best practices transition quickly over to the civilian side and, and provide some valuable education and training. So stay tuned as we get that up and running, but that, that's kind of where we are. You're also the assistant director for pre-hospital trauma and operational strategy at the Center for Combat Research at the University of Colorado at the Aurora Colorado campus. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So. Um, the CU Center for Combat Research is the brainchild of uh, Vic Babata, just a uh, super guy, researcher, reserve colonel in the Air Force. Um, and between him and the leadership staff with uh, Kathleen, Brigadier General Kathleen Flaherty, um, I got talking to them a couple of years ago. And through the prolonged field care working group and some of my interactions with, at the time being on active duty, um, they invited me to come take a look at some of the prolonged field care submissions. And what struck me was that many of them had absolutely no relevance to the clinical 
and operational problems that we were looking at. And so I saw this huge disconnect between the civilian research community and meeting the operational needs uh, you know, of the force. And so I kind of tongue in cheek said to Vic, I said, hey, now that I'm a private civilian and a taxpayer, I want to make sure that we're investing our taxpayer research dollars, you know, well. And so he invited me to come on to help with the leadership team to advise civilian researchers who many times have outstanding ideas, great initiatives or great products, but to try to put that operational spin on it to make it as relevant as possible. Uh, And I've been doing that as a consultant for the last couple of years, and it's been tremendously rewarding. And through the team that Vic has built, really, I think we've garnered the trust of a lot of the research institutions with DOD, as well as some other uh, government efforts. And it's really been a nice marriage between using some of my operational experience and some of the, the work that I do with the Joint Trauma System with guideline development to help steer and ensure that our you know, DOD research budget is actually being invested well to answer the most relevant operational problems. And so it's, uh, it's been a great experience to kind of use what I you know, gained from my active duty time and being able to translate that over to continue to serve kind of indirectly. Are there any projects that uh, have been a direct result of your input in the operational lane that they really weren't thinking about before, but now are focused on answering? So I first got involved uh, with the center when I was on active duty and working at Special Operations Command Europe, and they were applying for SOCOM funding. And I heard about the project that they proposed, which was a relatively simple question, but almost an elegant question in that they were looking at whether or not normoxia in trauma patients was equivalent or superior to the current practice of providing supplemental oxygen, much in the same way with chest pain patients where they are looking at, you know, uh, normoxia actually has better outcomes. And so they were applying for SOCOM funding. I received the email and I immediately said, yes, this is an operational problem that we are trying to solve, especially with prolonged field care. Because if we can prove that we don't need supplemental oxygen in trauma patients, logistically, if nothing else, um, it'll absolutely validate you know, our current practice, which is really not to have a lot of supplemental oxygen. And so they, they took that and ran with it. Um, and I was impressed with the, the research team they put together. It's now a multi-center trial. Uh, they're studying it with the subsets of TBI and burn patients. And in fact, when they presented, their research team presented at the recent SAMHSA conference, uh, they got the best oral presentation and research two years running with this particular study. So just a phenomenal study with really uh, brilliant researchers, you know, looking at relevant questions. Uh, And at the same time that I was coming on, one of their international medicine specialists, Dr. Moon Millman, was proposing a prolonged field care study where they were studying the system in South Africa. And what's unique about that is that they have a tremendous trauma load. So over 5,000 uh, penetrating trauma and hemorrhagic shock patients per year. And they had a very robust system, but their pre-hospital times, even though the pre-hospital specialists were trained to U.S. standards, so analogous to what we have in the military, they were looking at pre-hospital transport times of two to 12 hours before they got to a trauma center. But they also used electronic medical records. And so he set up a whole trauma registry there. And we're brainstorming ways that this can be an enduring way to study prolonged field care. Uh, And so I have a very small role as a consultant with that project as well, but just uh, very relevant and uh, and very germane things that we can't necessarily study within the the system. And so 
this, you know, this team has impressed me with their ability to really, you know, go after DOD's hottest questions. And, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're enjoying some good relationships with DHA and USU. When your grandchildren or great-grandchildren read the history books and they're on the part of that chapter where it talks about Sean Keenan and his role in military medicine, what would you like them to read about? I just pursued what I was passionate about and I just did my part, right? We just signed up and, and gave back and supported the effort however we could. The country was in need and, and, I, and I had tremendous opportunity to serve and I got to enable people on the front lines doing the hard jobs. When I look back on it, the many months I was away from my family, my wife, my kids, who I love dearly. When I was away, I was doing a job that, that was important and needed. And so there were some extraordinarily tough times in there, but I, I think just the fact that I served and, and did what, whatever gifts I was given and was able to get back to, that, that's kind of where it's at. And I think we all need to keep in mind the people that are still going out the door still doing the hard jobs every single day and think about if we still have some abilities or experience that we can share that people should try to take the opportunity to continue to serve and to set the conditions for their success going forward. When I retired, I went out to Bushmaster, the USU field exercise, and I had just retired. It was like in October. I was like two weeks into retirement at that point. And I saw all these, I'll call them kids, the young kids, and seeing the level of talent that was coming up made me feel good about retiring it made me feel confident that it was good hands. So if I can get back a little bit, continue to make their job easier, I want to continue to do that. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Colonel Dr. Sean Keenan on Wardock's podcast. Sean, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service. Thank you very much. And I appreciate what you guys do. And this is super important. And, and as I listen to other episodes and saw some of my colleagues, heroes, and people have done probably more than I had, just being able to to capture and save it. I think you guys are doing a tremendous job. So, so thank you. It's my privilege and, and I appreciate you spending the time to, to speak with me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.